Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network for book people. If you want to reach a lot of book people, art people, Book nerds, art nerds online, if you want to reach those people online, go to litbreaker.com and learn how you can advertise on a bunch of great culture websites all at once. Sites like the Paris Review, the Nervous Breakdown, the Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, Full Stop, the list goes on. Litbreaker.com, it's an online advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me over here in a state of intense sleep deprivation. This is you over there with a thousand-yard stare. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles. Uh, are you feeling good? How are you feeling out there? What's your worldview? What's your vision for the future? My guest today is Margaret Malone. Her debut story collection, People Like You, is available now from Atelier 26. And uh, I'm actually now thinking to myself, uh, is it pronounced People Like You or is it People Like You? Like, what's the inflection? Do you know what I'm talking about? Is it people who are similar to you or is it people enjoy you in terms of its meaning or is it uh, intended to have a double meaning is it intend you know intentionally confusing does it offer that up to the reader and uh in hopes of the reader making his or her own decision i'm going to go with people like you people really do like you just so you know and uh, margaret who was kind enough to come over here as she was in town uh, on tour for this book was uh, just delightful to talk with i really enjoyed meeting her i think you're going to enjoy our conversation which is coming up in just a moment before we get started I want to talk to you about the Powerball Lottery. Uh, I think this is on a lot of people's minds. I think a lot of us are aware of this, slash all of us. Uh, if you're not aware of the Powerball situation in America right now, there is a lottery. It's called the Powerball. It is uh, right now, I think, at a record-breaking jackpot of close to $1.5 billion and counting. So it's an absurdly large jackpot. 
that will make someone or a small handful of someone's uh, just absurdly wealthy, possibly by tomorrow night. There's going to be a drawing, and uh, somebody's going to win, probably. Though uh, last Saturday, I bought a ticket, and uh, or I actually bought 10 tickets. I spent $20. I bought 10 tickets. I said, fuck it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to take the ride, and I'm going to try. And then I'm going to not win, and then I'm going to complain about it on social media, just like everybody else. But I bought the, I bought the tickets. Everybody sat there with bated breath. They did the drawing. Nobody won. So now the jackpot gets even bigger. The excitement escalates. And uh, it's, a, it's a really stupid thing to do, <laughs> statistically. I mean, the odds of winning are 1 in 300 million, uh, give or take. I, I can't imagine worse odds. I think you have much better odds of getting struck by lightning, much better odds of getting eaten by a shark, by a long shot. So, I mean, we're talking astronomical odds that you're going to win the Powerball. And yet, someone's got to win. It's very Willy Wonka golden ticket uh, kind of feeling. And, I, you know, might as well take the ride. Might as well go through the process, right? Get a Powerball ticket. And uh, last weekend, I get a Powerball ticket. At that point, the jackpot, I think, was uh, approaching $900 million or had crested $900 million, or maybe it was $700 million. I can't remember. It was an absurd amount of money. And uh, I got the ticket about 24 hours before the drawing, and, uh, you know, I did it with sort of, uh, you know, an, a sort of ironic mental posture. Like, okay, I'll do this, whatever. And then uh, proceeded to spend the next 24 hours imagining my victory uh, to a level of detail that is embarrassing to, to admit. Uh, I was fantasizing. I was deep into the fantasy is what I'm trying to say. To the degree where uh, I was like imagining myself giving my speech to the media after I won. Uh, standing outside, you know, standing outside in front of my house, there's like a, uh, you know, a bank of uh, news vans and reporters and uh, cameramen, flashbulbs popping, people want to talk to me, people asking me questions. I wrote that speech in my head <laughs> about how I would give the money away. I was going to set up foundations. It was very, it was very like Gregory Peck. It was very Tom Hanks. It was very Bernie Sanders. I'm just a steward of this money. Nobody deserves to have this much money. It's absurd that I want it. I was making this great speech. I was, a, I was a populist. And before I make, you know, before I start to, uh, you know, deify myself, I was also going to keep some of the money. It's not like I'm going to give it all away. But I think if you win after taxes, uh, eight hundred million dollars or whatever it is, you know, you give away what at least three quarters of it and then the rest of it you know you take care of your family and uh you know you, you mess around with it or do whatever you want i don't know what's 25 percent of 800 million dollars that's still like 160 million dollars isn't that enough that should be enough i can't even compute that but uh anyway i got way down into the weeds imagining myself winning this thing to the point where i started to get emotionally invested i started to let myself have hope and that's a dangerous place to be in life and in the uh, in the context of the powerball lottery in particular also david bowie died that happened this week too uh most people in the states found out on monday i think he passed away sunday uh, some you know some of us in America found out late Sunday night. I found out at about like three thirty four in the morning, as I was feeding my uh, child or something. In the nursery, looking at my phone in the dark. 
shitty news to wake up to on any day, but especially on a Monday. And, uh, you know, you think about David Bowie, just a, an all-time great rock star and one of these artists who comes as close as I can think to being universally respected and adored all throughout. I mean, how do you... I can't imagine anybody having a better... Uh, a better standing with the uh, music-loving public. Everybody loved David Bowie. Everybody loves David Bowie. And uh, the beauty of it, of course, is that his music lives on. And the beauty for him, even though he's no longer with us, is that, you know, when you die... And I tweeted about this. When you die as a rock star, uh, people get to grieve you by playing your music really loud. That's nice. That's a nice legacy when you leave behind a bunch of great music. When you leave behind a bunch of great art, uh, or you know whatever it is that you leave behind, but music is a particularly cool thing to leave behind, is the point that I'm trying to make. So, uh, yeah, I'm bummed about David Bowie. I think a lot of us are. And, uh, of course, uh, there was this huge outpouring of grief on social media, which I have uh, complicated feelings about. Uh, you know, you read about something, you probably read about something like this online, and then a natural thing to do is to go to uh, Twitter or Facebook or wherever and hear what pe or read what people are saying about it or commiserate or, ex you know, post your own expressions of uh, grief. And uh, I get that. I get that. I think it's a natural thing to do in this day and age right now, things being what they are. But I do have a hard time trusting it, trusting the sincerity of it. I can find it overwhelming. I can find it... Uh, confusing. I can find it off-putting. I can find it uh, impossible to look away from, even though it seems like a train wreck. I can find it touching. I can find it all sorts of different ways. That's my problem. And uh, I guess that social media to me is by nature such a superficial and narcissistic environment that uh, the cynic in me uh, can think, you know, even these expressions of grief uh, even you know, even these are superficial too. Even these are narcissistic too, and self-promotional in some weird way. People trying to kind of glom on, or uh, out emote other people, or trying to attach oneself to the uh, glory of a falling star, <laughs> or whatever. I also sometimes wonder if there's subtext involved. You know, people uh, expressing all this grief online for somebody you know, in the culture who's been around and famous for a long time, a person like that passes away and it's a time marker for the rest of us. It reminds the rest of us of our own mortality, whether it's uh, Michael Jackson or whether it's Leonard Nimoy or whether it's uh, Lemmy or Natalie Cole or, uh, you know, David Bowie. People like, you know, people uh, like this, when they die, the rest of us go, oh shit, we're gonna, you know, I'm going to die too. And I'm not famous and I'm not rich. And when I die, uh, generally speaking, or, you know, broadly speaking, nobody's going to really give a shit. Or comparatively speaking, I should say. I mean, there's going to be some people who give a shit, but not like millions of people uh, laying flowers on a sidewalk or whatever, lighting candles. Spending money, buying albums. I think there's a, that's a part of it. It's a weird thing. There's something aspirational about the grief. Which, you know, I think, again, it's complicated. Part of that is sort of nice. This person inspires you to live a more creative life, to go for it, to leave a mark. But then there's also that fame thing and that money thing. That greed thing. Whatever it is. 
So I think it's a mix. I, I just, I, I'm just constitutionally unable to see anything one way. Everything's confusing to me. I wish things weren't, but they are. <laughs> uh, you know, that part of it is confusing. What isn't confusing is that David Bowie uh, was a great musician. Is a great musician. And uh, he will be missed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest today is Margaret Malone. Her debut story collection, People Like You, available now from Atelier 26. People like you. They really like you. Uh, I really like Margaret. I enjoyed meeting her. She's good people, and uh, I think you're going to like hearing from her. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Margaret Malone, and her story collection, one more time, is called People Like You. I had one day in L.A. It was the last night. Okay. I did the new short fiction series. At? At the Federal Bar. It was at a... The new short fiction series is where they take books of short stories and they select a handful and then, like, actors act them out on the stage. Oh, cool. At a bar. Yeah. So which actors act it? I mean, like, are they known actors? They're, like... Most of them are television actors. Okay. So they have, like, walk-ins on TV. But I've seen that done before. That's actually really effective... It's a cool way to see your own work performed. It was very weird. And there was a dress rehearsal the day before, so it was kind of fascinating to watch the sort of transitions of, you know, what they can do. It's so different from being a writer. I mean, it's similar, but it's completely different. So yeah, yeah. It was, it was cool. I was nervous about how it would be, and it actually turned out really beautifully. And you sat there and watched it. Yeah. You didn't get to, like, you weren't one of the players. No, I did nothing. All I had to do was, like, at the end I stood up and people clapped. That's it. I did nothing. That's the ultimate reading. It was reading. awesome. <laughs> it's like I got, like, all the credit. <laughs> yeah, it was fabulous. Um, well, that's cool. Uh, congratulations. This is your debut. Thank you. It is, yeah. It, it took you... Wait, you started writing when you were 27. Yeah. So I started writing in 2001. It was, like, the first time I ever wrote anything. What prompted it? I had been doing... I'd been in L.A. I was here with my husband, who was getting his master's in film, and I really did not like Los Angeles. I was pretty miserable. What, what didn't you like? <sighs> You know, I don't, I don't know. It was just like, it just wasn't my thing. I don't know. Just it, a vibe. it was, yeah, it just, I never felt comfortable here. It just didn't, like, I never rooted here. I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't be myself in some way, which is really speaks more to me in my youth. I was, you know, in my middle twenties. Sure. Um, so, and I also have this weird gene where like, if something scares me, I have to do it. So I was in LA and I, I lived in Hollywood and I used to drive with the groundlings all the time. And I was like, okay, comedy improv, like that is wicked terrifying. Yeah. I think I better start taking classes there. <laughs> so like, so I started doing that and then I moved to this other comedy improv place called Acme and I where's did that, that at acme is like right down the street from groundlings but it's on yeah it's it's like a block it's like two blocks away and okay. a lot of people were sort of moving from the groundlings to acme because you know groundlings had sort of become i don't know what it's like now but people were like eh, that was kind of like last decade and oh really I, a little bit and okay. so like people were moving to acme 
So um, I did that for a couple of years. And then the people around me who were doing it with me were like actors and they had headshots and were going up for commercials. And like, I didn't want to do that. I just did it because it was terrifying and mildly Were you fun. any good at it? I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure. Did you perform before live audiences? No, it was more, it was classes. It was classes. Yeah, we were performing before each other. But no, I never, I never pushed myself to do, it was more just like the having to forcing myself out of my comfort zone. Is it the whole thing? I mean, I don't know anything about this, but I've just heard like like, in comedy improv, you're basically trying to say no to whatever the person. You have to say yes. Oh, you have to say yes. Yes, and. Yes, and. (laughs) Yes, and. Yes, and. Which is actually a really good tool for life. And for having kids, yes. actually, because that's how you play with kids. Yes, and. But, um, yeah, so I was doing that, and then I realized I had no desire to take it any further. I didn't really want to go on stage in front of an audience because I didn't want to – usually it was a catalyst to go somewhere else, and I had no desire to – You didn't want to be on, like, Saturday Night Live. Not or... really. I mean, it sounds – it does sound sexy, but, like, no, I didn't really. And so then one day um, for my birthday, for a birthday present, I was like, I'm going to take a sh- – I'm going to take a short story class at UCLA Extension. And I and I went in, and the first day we heard the assignment was, okay, go home and write a short story. And I was like, well – you know, I'm here to learn how to write a short story. I'm just going to go home and write one. That's terrifying. And then I was like, no, if I can like do comedy improv and make something up on the spot, I can totally go home and write a short story. And so I did. And as soon as I did it, I was like, oh, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. It was that clear. It was totally clear. What about it? Um, it just was like, because it, it was like everything... It was like everything that interested me, only I had complete control. It was psychology and philosophy and character and acting and... Private exhibitionism. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, like it's Im- all about me, but you don't know it's about me. <laughs> oh, my God. It was awesome. And I have complete control over the information that you get. Right. Like, oh, I, I loved it. I loved it right away. And were you a big reader prior to that? I was a big... I mean, I, I had become a big reader in my early 20s. So... But I wasn't like the kid that wrote short story. You know, like... Yeah, I mean, like, I wasn't I either. I just wasn't that person. So it never occurred to me any earlier to be a writer. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know that was a thing you could be, you know? Mm. So... Yeah, so that's sort of how I... Who was your teacher at UCLA? Did you have any, like, somebody who was, like, super influential? Oh, yeah, I had a couple. So the first super influential person was Les Plesko. Oh, yeah. Who died last year. Yeah, I know. That was awful. So we we ran an essay uh, or a remembrance of him on uh, The Nervous Breakdown. Did you? Oh, man. He took his own life for people listening. Yes. So sad end. It really, really sad. And he was a really incredible writer and very brave. And he was sort of the first person who loved what I was doing. I mean, he was very, he was effusive with praise with all his students, but he would just be like, damn, I'm just jealous. You're just rocking it right now. Like, and it, for a young writer, it was like, really? Like, okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, you got it. It, you got to get a little bit of that. Yeah. It's important. Hopefully the more, the better it it spurs you on your way. It gives you a little bit of confidence and energy. Yes. He was like just the right amount of confidence. It's just the right time. So I was like, okay, like I can trust myself to keep doing this. And then I encountered Lisa Glatt, who I studied with for a long time. And she was hugely influential for me too. And then you got out of LA. And then I left LA. I convinced my husband on my 30th birthday. I was like, so (laughs) I have this crazy idea that if I'm for my 30th birthday, I'm going to fly to Portland and give myself three days. And if we can find a rental house in three days, let's move. And I did. And I flew back and we packed our stuff and we left two weeks later. That was it. That was it. Yeah. And it's the best decision we ever made. Why? It was awesome. 
It was just more our speed. We'd been in LA. We'd been poor the whole time we'd been there. And we could have the same amount of money in Portland and like go out to dinner and like lead a, like a much more satisfying life. Better quality us. of life. Yeah. Totally. Um, and it was smaller and there were trees and rain and fog and just like <laughs> all that stuff that I love that yeah. I miss yeah. um, when I lived in LA. So. And then you started uh, getting into the writing community up there? And then I did, well, right when we moved, um, so like the first, the first, the first year, first six months we were there, I was working on my short. That's right when I started to get published. Is that year that I left, two thousand four? Everything started happening as soon as you left. I'm God like, such a jackass. Who does that? I know <laughs> things are going great. So bye. Um, yeah. So and then I I started to try and connect with people up there. And then um, in the winter of that year, so like ten months after we moved, my husband was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Oh Jesus! Yeah, so everything kind of came to a screeching halt, um, and I couldn't write fiction. I I just couldn't because real life was so overwhelming. That, this was like, how long after you were in Portland? Like ten months. Oh we had God. what we call the honeymoon period. We're like we got to Portland and like we rode bikes to bars at night and just like it was warm and <laughs> yeah. God, it was just this like. It was like being 13 again, only I was 30. Like, it was just amazing. Glory days. It was the glory days. And then it all just came crashing down. What kind of brain tumor? Um, it's called chondrosarcoma. It's a super-duper rare brain tumor that was grew into his pituitary gland, back of his optic nerve, and near his carotid artery. So it was not a great place. Ugh. As any brain tumor is in a good place. But, you know, but, does it, like, there's, like, glioblastoma, yeah, which is, like, the really dark one. Yes. It's not, it wasn't glioblastoma. They actually didn't know what it was at first because it's so rare. So he was diagnosed just with, like, a tumor-like growth, is what they said. Was he having, was he, he must have been showing he symptoms. He had really bad headaches, ferocious okay. headaches that would wake him up in the middle of the night. And his vision was starting to get wonky because it was growing into his optic nerve. And so he'd get these, like, fluttery, all kinds of stuff was <sighs> going on. So, and he had a feeling, and I kept saying, like, and he was that guy, like, because I, I knew my husband for a long time, like, I think I have a brain tumor. And I'd be like, oh, my God, you do not have a brain tumor. And the motherfucker gets a brain tumor. <laughs> like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, um, he was his original diagnosis, what they thought it was, because I don't really know till they're in there and looking at it, was not good. It was a tumor that, though it's benign, is terminal. Um, and so the first like four or five months, think like that's what we thought was going on. Oh, that's a long time to be thinking it's that. It's a very, very long time. Yeah. So, and then they got in there and like six months later, it was something that was actually a malignant brain tumor, but that had a much better prognosis, especially if you had this particular kind of treatment. So he had two brain surgeries and then we moved to Massachusetts to go to Mass General Hospital for two, every day for two months. So he could get this at the time, very specialized kind of radiation called proton beam radiation that's like kind of awesome it's like this cyclotron it's like this two-story energy machine that like sh that winnows all the energy down to like a laser sized beam that will like try and just barbecue whatever is shouldn't be there wow yeah so i mean you know it's like easy to be frustrated with uh medicine and going to doctors and the insurance and but then when you really need it it's amazing it some of the things they can do. It was amazing. Yeah. yeah, it completely shifted how I look at the medical world. I mean, no question. I no feel. Question. I mean, like, I mean, this is kind of a touchier subject, but I feel that way about police too. 
Uh-huh. It's easy to just bash all cops in a really broad way until you need one. Right. And then it's like, thank God you were here. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. well, that's, and then I take it he's and recovered. And he's doing well. Yeah. <clears throat> the tumor's still there, but it's barbecued. And so, yeah, he gets it checked every year and we've been. So they don't, they didn't go in and take lucky. it out. They took out as much as they could. So we had two brain surgeries, but they couldn't get it all out because of where it was. It was like real close to the carotid artery. And so his neurosurgeon was like, I'm not going any closer than that. Okay. Um, And because of the kind of tumor that it was and because it responded so well to this particular kind of treatment, they were like, we'll refer you and send you out to Mass General and things look good. And they did. And it, it, it it worked really well for him. He's been... Cool. Yeah. I'm going to do this just because I'm... Thank you. Yeah. I'm superstitious. Superstitious too. Yeah. Um, okay. So then at what point could you write fiction again? So then I'd say about like maybe two, two years later, I started to be able to like think about going back. Um, and there was sort of like one story that's my tr- transition story. And I just kind of started working on that. I had this, we had this cool setup where we, like we rented a house and then in back of the house was this old filthy garage yes (laughs) but it was this like cool turn of the century like it used to be a carriage house i think and so i was like up i have to climb a ladder up to the lot it was a big tall thing and so i sat up there and i was like okay like i'm gonna i'm gonna try and get this back again and it was kind of awkward at first and and then it was like yeah no oh i miss this a lot and that was sort of my foray back into fiction how much of the book was done when you stopped um, like, before, wait, said it. What do you mean? Like before the the brain tumor, you had how many stories done? Before the, I'd say like three or four of them were started and looked pretty different, but many of them survived that transition. I think I just became a really a, a little bit of a different writer over that time. But like four four or so of them were started before. It's kind of good. I mean, in a way, it seems like it might be better to be in that situation with the story collection since there are these little self-contained units as opposed to being in the middle of a novel and then dropping it for two and a half years and then coming back to it as a completely different person and trying to reaccess it it would be uh, yeah i can't imagine i probably would have just i could i don't think i could have gone back actually to something that big yeah um but the stories were easier in a way because it was like i could dip my toe in the water a little bit and then you know like revisit the characters and it was a little bit more non-committal i think right yeah till i remembered how much i loved them all and then it was really <laughs> fun and know? and from there until finishing because this was like a what the overall it was like a 12-year process yeah it was like 12 years yeah and so yeah and so then i um discovered up in portland i found this a writer named tom spambauer sure who has the legendary the tom legendary Sp- tom spambauer who i'd sort of known about there's kind of a long story there i don't want to get into that but when I lived in LA, um, I don't know if you remember this. A long time ago, LA Weekly used to do like this thing called "Writers on Writers They Love." I don't know how long they did it for, but it'd be like a little essay that a writer would write about a writer that they love. And it was like the first couple months that they'd done it, they had Chuck Palahniuk write about um, sort of about mostly about Amy Hempel. And I didn't know I knew who Chuck Palahniuk was, but I'd never read any of his work. And I'd heard of Amy Hempel, but I'd never read any of her work. And I'd never heard of Tom Spanbauer. And his essay was just about, like, when you go to Tom Spanbauer's class, the first thing you do is you read The Harvest by Amy Hempel and you basically dissect it. And so the essay was just about how he dissects um, the story using Tom Spanbauer's language. And um, I read that and it was like going to grad school in a, in a 
in like a one page newspaper article and I just kept it above my desk forever and this was when I was in LA so I moved to Portland and I met this random person at a bookstore who was like hey I'm a writer you're a writer I'm a writer what are you doing I'm not doing anything I work I my teacher's this guy named Tom Spanbauer would you ever want to come and I was like Tom Spanbauer like really okay and so I sort of just went one day and I sat at the table and it was another one of those moments where like within 15 minutes I was like oh my god I'm so supposed to be here like it was all this was all to be here because it was the kind of fiction that always interested me was like minimalist realism sort of like what was going on in the 80s a little bit that like wasn't cool anymore but I, I loved it it felt so right to me and it was this table full of people that spoke this language that I'd been trying to teach myself, but everybody spoke it there. And we were all like, they got, they, they got it. And I got them. And here was Tom who was like, sort of like the king of this, this thing that I wanted to understand more. Well, I think compression or, I mean, whatever you want to call it, you know, brevity, compression, yeah. uh, realism, minimalism, yeah. minimalism. Yeah. Um, it's a really hard way to write. Yeah. And I feel like when you read something written in that style and written well, um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, he- I'm hesitating because I don't want to say something dumb. <laughs> um, <laughs> Please say something it's dumb. Hard, it's hard to write well in any style. Like if you're super lyrical and you write these long and winding sentences that work, like that's doable. But there's something about... Um, saying the most you possibly can in the fewest number of words that impresses me mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's also just that thing that, like that most aspiring writers run into, uh, if they like that kind of writing where you sit down and try to do it and it's like, Oh shit, this looked a lot easier than I thought it would when I was reading it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then you sit down to do it yourself and you realize how much work goes into making something that clear and that effortless to read so hard so yeah. many drafts i mean drafts and drafts and drafts and drafts that if i knew when i started out i'd be like oh my god i'm so not doing this right <laughs> but i couldn't help it it wasn't like i picked it it was truly like that is what interested me and so i kind of just accidentally what did you study in school philosophy okay yeah so it's yeah. like where do you put that and it turns out you put it into short stories i and... guess so i mean it's funny because looking back the philosophy i loved was like basically like you know literary philosophy so i loved Camus and I loved Sartre and I loved Kierkegaard and basically the existentialist. I'm like perpetually a 16 year old girl, but <laughs> I loved all that stuff. And those people, those philosophers were writing pretty much about their own lives, you know? And so oftentimes, and so once I started writing, it kind of all started to make a little bit more sense, but yeah, I mean, cause you know, philosophy is also closely linked to psychology and character. And so it all kind of started making sense. I find philosophy hard, often hard to read. Oh, it's, it's a so lot of these hard. guys, as brilliant as they are, were really hard to read. And like, yes, that sort of goes uh, hand in hand with what I was just saying about minimal, uh, minimalism and clarity is that it's like these people are really brilliant and they're saying something that's very complex, but they're saying it in a very complex way. Yes. When all I want as like a lay person is for somebody to just like distill this for me. Yes. But that's a lot of work. It is a lot and of it's work. It's his own gift. It, it is. It's a lot. It is a lot of work. Um, and I think, I mean, there is definitely a connection there. I'm not exactly sure that I can articulate that. But I think that, I guess the connection for me would be when I would read philosophy in school, 
I had to take a lot of care when I read their words. I couldn't move on until I really understood what they were saying. And so that made for obvious, like sometimes very long <laughs> reading periods because I couldn't, I couldn't just like breeze over it and think like, well, I'll figure it out at the end. Like you I had, had to, to, I had to understand what they were saying. And so I, I definitely think that level of care as a reader then carried over as a writer because I was using so few words my words had to be selected carefully. And also, I I really wanted people to understand what I was saying. I didn't want to be a minimalist writer in the sense of, like, like figure it out. I, yeah. I wanted it to be like, I want to use the fewest possible number of words, but I really want you to understand the picture that I'm painting and what this character is thinking. And, and to have, like, and to feel an emotional connection. Absolutely. For yeah. me, that's, like, that's huge. It's all about that. It's all about connection for me. Yeah. So, okay. So, uh, you get... To the point of finishing this collection, you're in Tom Spanbauer's. You workshop your stories in his yep. roundtable. Mm-hmm. Who else is sitting around with you? Anybody we know? Um, who's there? N- probably not. There are a bunch of people there before me um, that people probably have heard of. Um, but at the time that I was at the table, n- no, no. He's got. That's kind of like his legacy. Though, like so many people who have passed through his class have gone on to great publishing success. Oh my gosh! I mean, like. 30 plus and counting. So that's like Chuck was in there, Lydia Yuknovich, Cheryl Strayed. Cheryl Strayed wasn't in there, but yes, she, they sort of formed their own like workshop after, and a lot of them sort of came through Tom. Monica Drake was in there. Monica and, Drake, yeah. Yeah, there was a whole. I've talked to a bunch. It's have just, you? Yeah. And I've never been, I have spent very little time in Portland, and I've obviously never been at Tom Spanbauer's table, but it has this sort of like mythical, um, I have this kind of mythical understanding of it. I, yeah. ima- I imagined it as this like, you know, Algonquin round table or something. It is a little <laughs> bit like that. Yeah. If you ever go, you should um, tell him you're coming and he'll let you sit okay. in the basement. You can like, it's... what do you call that when you do that in college? When you go to a college class? Oh, when you audit? You audit. Yeah. yeah. I'll audit Tom Spanbauer's. You'll audit. And they call if, you, if you're not at the table and you're like around the outside of a table, which is what happens if you have to like wait your turn or whatever. They call it being pond scum, which sounds really awful. <laughs> Everyone in there is like so full of love that it sounds worse than it. It sounds like a horrible hazing thing. It's a term of endearment. It is. Yeah. So, okay. So you workshop those stories you get those stories published in book form Mm -hmm. how did that happen um so i'd been i wrote with tom for like maybe three years and then did he change your stuff pretty fundamentally he or help you realize what it is or something what tom did for me that i was missing was like he brought a level of heart to my stories that i was partly unable to get on my own and mostly just scared to put on the page and Tom, yeah. I want to stop you there. That makes yeah. so much sense. And it makes sense a couple in a couple of ways. One is just what you just said, uh, being scared to like expose, reveal, put all that messy stuff. Sometimes you feel like, oh, people don't need to see this. Yeah. This is too much. Yeah. But in actuality, it's exactly what they need. That's what it's all about. Uh, and then secondly, it makes sense that uh, a story, when it's close to done but not quite done, would be missing heart and would maybe be like a leaning too far in the direction of the head. You know what I'm saying? Like you've totally. intellectualized it. You've put the puzzle together. Everything's there except like the blood. Totally. So. And that was really true for me, especially because I came from a background of philosophy and philosophy is all head. There's not a lot of heart in philosophy, not on the page anyway. And so that's what was missing for me. And Tom like he is just like he's just like a walking bare heart. He just is love, and he 
is not shy about and he's actually a very shy introverted person like in terms of you know how he is with people but he just is love and he pulls he pulls it out of you like you want you you want to give it no matter how uncomfortable it makes you when you're with him and you're at the table like you 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 want to do that too and so that is what tom gave me that i couldn't have i couldn't have gotten there on my own that's awesome. It is awesome. It's huge. And that is what fundamentally changed my writing. And really, that's what blew it open. Do you think that going an, into another writing project, like if you're working on your next book, that's something that you'll be able to better recognize and do on your own? Or do you think you'll need like a midwife again? I think I can do it now. I can be my own midwife in that way because I can I can call myself out now. I mean, I can see when I'm like dancing around my head and be like, ah, but what's really going on? Because he, like, once once he came into my sort of writing space, it was familiar. And it was like, like, he was also me. And so it was like, okay, well, I can I can do that because that's in there, too. I just was afraid. And he made me not afraid. Even though it's still uncomfortable, he made me not afraid to put it on the page. And so I can do that now. If I mean, it doesn't always come out the first draft, of sure, course. Sure. But, yeah, I can do it. I can, can you, do it. Can you think, I don't want to, and if you can, it's okay because I don't want to put you on the spot too much but like can you think of a story or a moment in a story where he was like where's the heart in this what's missing like something that you wound up adding after working with him um you know weirdly I mean, the only thing that's coming the, the one that's coming the most to mind is actually something i didn't write at the table um but the the well actually can I, okay, so I'll go back. Okay, so the one. Okay, so the one. One of them that's coming to mind is there's in the book. There's three stories that are recurring characters. This married couple called Bert and Cheryl, as they sort of have their marriage and are trying to have a family. And the second story is just a really simple story of like a doctor's appointment. That's like incredibly, <laughs> um, what's the proper word? Just uncomfortable, and. Um, when I first wrote that story, it was just this really uncomfortable doctor's visit where like they're all in a room and the Bert, the character is like getting exam, getting a like exam from a sort of not kind doctor, not people friendly doctor. And then as I was, and that was kind of it, it was supposed to be like funny and uncomfortable and just like weird. And I, um, yeah. And like talking about something that people don't really like to think about cause he gets a, there's a prostate exam in it. And, um, and then I brought that to the table and I realized that, it, but it didn't have a lot of heart because it, there wasn't a lot of about like, what, why are they there and what's imp- like, what's important, you know? Um, and so Tom helped me, I think at the end of that particularly to, um, like make it, uh, make them expose themselves like emotionally and not just go for the funny of like the prostate exam as to why it was so important and what it meant to them and what they could gain or lose. So that was helpful. But more than anything, also the very last story in the book, which I didn't write at the table at all. That's the most recent story I wrote. Um, But that Tom is now in my head. And so that story, I just like laid my guts on the table and was like, I don't, here you go. Here you go. Yeah. Like my emotional. (laughs) You're welcome everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You guys clean up the mess. 
So in a way, he was the most influential in that story, even though I didn't write that at the table. It's like standing on your shoulder or whatever. Totally. So, okay. So then how'd you get published? So I had this collection um, that I'd been working on on and off. You know, in my version, in my head, it was like I had had a first draft of it maybe two two or three years ago after my son was born. And then I kept like changing it, adding this story, pulling this out. I didn't know what to do. And, um, uh, and then I had another child. I had my daughter and when she was like six or I don't know, I don't know how old she was, a few months old. I was like, Oh my God, enough. Like I've got to get this thing published. It does not have to be a big press. I've like, I've got to get this out there. And so I did some research and sort of started formulating a list of small presses that I thought I could approach. And I sat down to um, start querying small presses. And the same day that I sat down, I got an email from a small press publisher that was like, hey, I saw you read at Pals, and I loved your short story, and I'm reading other stuff about you. And have you ever thought of putting together a collection of short stories? And I was like, I'm sitting at my computer today to query small presses. Like, do you want to see my manuscript? And like, What are the odds of that? It's crazy town totally crazy town wow yeah and it's been an amazing experience he's a lovely publisher he's a writer himself and so there's just an instant understanding right from my point of view he's a great he was a great editor it was it's been an amazing experience wow good for yeah, you it's been dreamy seems like uh, meant to be I mean, it felt meant to be yeah it was it's been incredible and so and then i've read i've read also that you like to uh, read before audiences. I love it. You it's like that. That's like the, that's like the thing. improv. I like think Jean so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Because the first, the first reading I ever did was my, my first short story that got published was in this magazine called swink. It was their first issue. And I just moved to Portland and I flew back to LA for the big like premiere party. I'd never read in front of anybody except like people in classes and um, and it, the house was like packed, and there was like a hundred people Where was there. This? God, it was like it was. I don't know. It was in someone's. I feel like it was in someone's ha- very nice house somewhere, okay. but it was like very formal, and there were waiters with drinks, and it was all like it was very uncomfortable for me. <laughs> Extremely. Uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable just like like hearing about it. Oh my god, it was so uncomfortable. Um. And so I flew back for that, and I walked up on stage, and I was able to read my whole short story because it wasn't super long. And I was really, really nervous. Um, And then, like, a page in, this weird thing happened where all of a sudden I wasn't nervous anymore, and I was in, like, the zone, for lack of a better word. Um, And, like, I was The whole world slows down. Like, yeah, it's super (laughs) cheesy, but it totally is true. And it happened where I was like, I'm not me reading this, and I am not nervous, and we're just together in this little, like, thing where we are. And, like, and it was was awesome. And that was another moment where I was like, oh, like, this is... This is what I'm supposed to be doing. You've gotten, you've gotten a lot of signs. I have. I have. Yeah. And then like you went out. I mean, like I sh- I've also noticed just because I noticed these things that like your book is really well blurbed. I, yeah. So you got good blurbs too? I do have good blurbs. Yeah. How did, how did that happen? That happened partly because I... Um, the Spanbauer effect? <laughs> partly the Spanbauer effect. Partly because I've been writing for so long without having a book out that I like have friends that are writers um, All of whom have published like four and five books. Oh my gosh, I know, <laughs> I know, and like really beautiful stuff. And then also it was because you know it took me so long to write the book and get it out there that I made a promise to myself, which was 
I'm going to do everything I can for this book because I don't know when the next book will come along. Like, t- I have two small kids. It's going to be a long time to get this done, and life is short, and who knows what's going to happen. And I'm going to, like, reach out to everybody I can, no matter how uncomfortable it makes me. Like, and what, do, what do you mean me, reach out? Email? Phone? Just, like, send emails. And knock on their calls. door? Yeah. I mean, like, Jim Shepard. I didn't know Jim Shepard. I didn't know him at all. How did you get in touch with him? I cold where I've looked on the internet for his email at where he teaches. And I wrote a cold email that was like, hey, I've seen you talk at Tin House. And he was one of my heroes. I mean, he really was one of my literary heroes. As you know. It was min- authentic. Minimal- yeah, it was totally authentic. I didn't reach out to anybody at a BS. I really only reached out to people that I loved, whose work I loved and would mean something to me. But he's the one I really did. I didn't, I didn't know him at all. And I just wrote a long email, embarrassing, like going on and on. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and he didn't write me back. Do you have it with you? Do I? Oh, my God. <laughs> No, I probably do, but I know. Don't make me read it. No, I won't. I think that I think though what's interesting is because I think we've all written an email like this at some point in our lives, whether it's to ask for a blurb or to ask for something or some sort of fan letter or just something like that. Um, but they're not always effective. They're no. often ignored, and so I'm impressed that yours wasn't. And I'm curious to know what you said. Well, I said a couple things. One is that I made actual connections. So I had seen him at Tin House. Tin House is you know the writing festival in Portland that comes right. through. So I I had seen him there. And I do genuinely love his writing because especially writing, you know, he, he's, I mean, I would call him minimalism. I mean, he's, he's amazing what he can do inside, deep inside first person. He blows me away. So I did genuinely love his work. So I did say that. Um, um, and it kind of was long and rambling and awkward, which is. But earnest. It was so earnest. Yeah. But then he didn't write me back. And it was right when the book of Aaron came out. So I was like, oh, he's on tour. He's never going to write me back. Who the fuck am I? And and then all of a sudden this like response popped up into my inbox and he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I was on tour. Um, I can't promise you anything. I'm blurbing a bunch of students books. And he's like, but if you feel like it, just send it to me and it'll sit on my desk and we'll see. And then he wrote at the end like, hey. If you live in Portland, I'm coming round again to Tin House this summer. You know, if you feel like it, come by and introduce yourself. And I was like, okay, like, okay, I can do that. And so it was summer and the Tin House Festival was going on. And I live pretty close to where they have the festival every year. And um, so I, like, amped myself up and my husband was willing to babysit the kids. And I, like, rode my bike down there at nighttime. And I waited, like, I went and I listened to his craft talk or his reading, whatever it was. And then, um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to wait in line. I had to wait in line with all the people waiting to have their books signed. And um, I waited in line and I walked up there and I was like, hi, I wrote you an email and asked you to blurb my book and you don't know who I am. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for even writing me back. And he was like, who are you? And I was like, oh, God, my name is Margaret Malone, and I've written a book called People Like You, and I wrote you. And he was like, oh, he's like, oh, yeah, thanks for coming down. And I was like, sure, I just wanted to say thanks for being so generous for even writing me back. And he was like, and I'm just naturally awkward as a person, and I got really awkward when I got nervous. Um, and he, he just looked at me, and he was like, I can just tell that you have a lot of heart. And he just like, give me a hug. And he came around the table and like gave me a big hug, and he was like, and I don't know, he said a couple other things, and I just said, thank you so much, this is so great. And I was like, whatever happens is fine, I just really want to thank you for just writing me back even. And it all went well, and I was like, okay, this is like, okay. And then as I'm walking away, when I get nervous, I say really dumb stuff. And as I'm walking away, I was like, I'm feeling really good. And so I like turn back, and I'm like, hey, good luck. And he was like, good luck. 
I was like, oh, shit. I wrote the book of Aaron. Oh, my God. He was like, what do you mean, good luck? And I was like, just good luck. And I was like, oh, my God. And I, like, slinked off. I rode my bike back home up the hill. And, like, I went home and told my husband. And he was like, oh, when yeah. he was done laughing, yeah. he was like, so you got to write him an email. <laughs> Apologize. <laughs> and I just was so, like, oh, like, that is just so like me to just blow it. I think, yeah, I can relate 100%. So like me. And so I went, I don't even think, I, I had to wait a couple days because I was so embarrassed. But I wrote him an email that just said, so it's like just like me to not stick the landing, Jim. <laughs> so sorry. Um, and weirdly, I think that actually all made a difference. Maybe. Okay. So I mean, this it makes a lot more sense now because I think when you just ask somebody for a blurb, even if you know them, or like you kind, of, I guess if you really know them, then they're probably going to do it. But um, you showed up for him, like you went to his thing. First of all, you went to his thing before you ever asked for the blurb. You read his books before you ever asked for the blurb. He suggested that you come say hi. You went and said hello. I think that goes a long way with people. Yeah. Even yes. somebody fancy or, you know, who's really decorated or whatever, like they're going to go, oh. And it's and once, you know, once people put a face with a name, it gets harder to say no. Well, that is true. You know. Yeah. Well, it just, yes. Yeah. I mean. Especially when, especially when she's super earnest and nervous and. <laughs> and oh my God. Wishes you luck. So you? <laughs> awkward. Oh, it's terrible. Like just thinking about it now, I'm like. Yeah. Bleh. Yeah. 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 So, and then a week later he sent me a blurb and it was like the blurb. That was like one of the best moments of my writing career. I read his blurb and I was like, I just flipped out. I was like, your blurb is better than my book. I love you. <laughs> it was so beautiful. You it got, was amazing. You got your tattoo, his name tattooed on your oh, arm. Oh my God, seriously. <laughs> it just was like, oh my God. To have another writer of his caliber like get exactly what I was doing and articulate it so beautifully, was it blew me away. That's awesome. It was awesome. So, are you and you have other books in the pipeline? Yeah, oh brother, don't I? Yeah, so my husband and I actually wrote a me- co-wrote a memoir about his brain tumor. So that's sitting around. What's that called? Uh, the Year of Travel and Good Fortune. Okay. Um, and then I have a collection of essays that's almost done. It's maybe like two essays shy of a full collection, and I've started writing another collection of short stories. I feel like essay collections. Especially essay collections by women are like red hot right now. Oh, do you think that? I do think oh, that. Oh, God. From, it, yes. I mean, I don't know. I don't, what do I know? But Let's it's, start that. Yeah. <laughs> People, <laughs> that's what's happening. This is what's hot. Well, they're hotter than they used to be. It used to be like essay collections never sell. Don't do an essay collection. But now I feel like, you know, like the Lena Dunham and then there's other. That's true. There's like collections. Megan that, Dom. Yeah. Megan Dom. Yeah. They've kind of proven that like these collections can be. Yeah. Uh, successful commercially and um, that there's an audience for them. And so. Yeah. Maybe you can ride that wave. That would be awesome. Yeah. What's I it like? What's the? Is it a unified theme, or is it just kind of disparate? I mean, unfortunately, not like Lena Dunham or <laughs> Megan Dom. Um, it's pretty. It's pretty dark. Like it's a lot of like the dark things that I've been through. My Lay husband's my husband's brain tumor. There's yeah. a couple in there about like the one's called the first week of after, but the first week of his diagnosis. One is about sort of after the year we lived through and like trying to come back to normal life. Um, one is about, although there's one that's almost like novella length, that's really long. That's about a miscarriage I had, but it's also sort of juxtaposed with this obituary I read at the time of a man named Earl Cooley, who's this real man who lived, who was part of these like early smoke jumpers where this really horrible tragedy happened and 12 men, boys, really, they were like 18 year olds died when they jumped into a fire and everything kind of went wrong. 
and I, I read his, his obituary like the day before I found out we, we weren't going to be able to keep the baby. And so it all in my head mixed together. And so I have this very long novella length essay sort of exploring the miscarriage and also the story of Earl Cooley. Wow. And what happened. So that's in there. Um, there's, there's one about, there's, what else is there? There's a story, another story about um, when I was pregnant, some uh, health issues with my son, like in utero, and sort of living through that. And it's not. For, I, I say this repeatedly, like on this show and in my life. It's not for sissies. No, it is not. It is like stuff no. can happen, and there's these checkups are nerve wracking, especially horrible. after something has not gone well. Yes, it makes it like doubly sort of ruins it. <laughs> it was especially for us because we were like we had my husband's brain tumor, and then we started trying to have a family, and things did not go well, and we started having trying to family, and so it's like every time we went to the hospital, it was just like. It was just like, well, like here's your bad news for the day. Like it just, <laughs> just, it just kept happening. It was, it was horrible. Okay, so this nonfiction. Yeah. That, when did you write it? Was this the stuff that you could write when you couldn't write fiction? Yes. So in the time that I couldn't write fiction, that's when I started writing memoir, and uh-huh. it was really because I was, we were living through my husband's brain tumor, and all I could do was write exactly what was happening. So I was really just like keeping a journal, like. This is what I did today. And a lot of times it was like, today I vacuumed and I'm worried my husband's going to die. And then I swept the floor and I'm worried my husband's going to die. And so I was just like, it was like two years of, of that. Um, was it hard? I mean, I guess it was easier to write than fiction, but like to go back and examine really painful stuff in your life that you lived through. What I've found, cause I'm trying to do something like that in a book uh, that I'm working on is that it's really slow. It's so slow to write because you're just like, oh, and you're like trying to do it justice. And I don't know what it is, but it's like, it's like this weird thing. I got to write this book. I got to get it out of me. But it's like moving one grain. It's like moving a beach one grain of sand at a time is what it sort of feels like. Yeah, that's actually a really great. It's exactly like that. It's okay. really good. Because really if, if you hard. if you said it just poured out of you, I was going to be really bitter. No, I mean <laughs> I would say the first draft, a first draft, um, sometimes can pour out of me. But it's more like I always call it the vomit draft, especially with memoir, because it's like I'll just get it all out. But the rewriting, the actually like making it good, because especially with memoir for me, like the first draft is pretty bad yeah um and so the rewriting and the shaping it into something of value and worthy and like interesting language wise is so slow and painful and especially with memoir it's like it's visceral in a really different way i mean i can argue that too with fiction but like it's really different because it's not visceral and like i'm gonna get into the character visceral it's like i can scratch the surface and like oh yeah it's all over you're right back there and yeah. That's so, a lot to go through. Oh, it's so, it's, it's You hard. went through a lot. We did, we did. Jesus. And like to make the, I mean, not to get too personal, but I have to ask because I feel like a lot of people will be wondering, like when you have, a, you know, your husband's ill, he's got a brain tumor, he's having brain surgeries, you're flying across the country, you get a good diagnosis. It's like, it's still in there, but it's good. Was there, was there any reservation about like, and now we're going to have kids, <laughs> you know, like, Oh yeah. That's a big leap to make. And yeah. you sort of have to have some faith, I guess, or. Yeah. I mean, we were scared. We were scared. And I, my husband was probably more scared than I was in a weird way because he really, it took him a little bit of time to trust, like I'm going to be around. Um, so it was, but it also was just sort of it's like, it's in a way it's biological. It's out of your hands. It's almost like the closer you are to death, the more, like we were just like our, the first thing we thought, like the first night he was diagnosed, we both independently were like, we've got to have a baby. 
There's just like what is that? I because I don't think that's just it's biological. It's just like it's just perpetuation of the species. Because yeah. it makes absolutely no sense. It makes. I mean, I, this is part of the argument that I'm going through when I'm working through this book. Like, it's part of what the, the book is about. Not to make this about me. No, please. But it's. I'm, I'm in the same realm. So it's like, is it even like ethical to have kids? Which is kind of a really dark thing to say. Now that I have two, but bringing people into this world as fucked up as it is, and like the forecast is gloomy in yeah. terms of uh, the ecology of the planet. Mm-hmm. It's like, but yet, man, did I want kids. <laughs> you know? And we were the same way. Yeah, yeah. And I, that's just that's. You think that's just bio? What is that? I don't know. I think it's. I it's. I, I truly believe it's biology. Okay. I think it's evolution, and I, it doesn't hit everyone the same. No, I mean, I no. Think, some people have no interest. No, and they don't. And like, kudos to you for <laughs> you know. But yeah, but we both wanted it, and we were scared, but we still did it. Did it? Yeah, and we fought for it. Like we worked hard. Yeah. Um, it makes it sweet. It does make it sweet. Kids are fun. You like you like being a mom. I love it. Yeah, I love it. Way you more seem like than you're I a good mom. Like I, you give off good mom energy. I hope so. I mean, I'm away from them right now. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder you're so delightful. <laughs> you're like I slept in a hotel last I night. I did. I slept on my friend's couch, oh. and it still was like the best night's sleep I've had in four years. Oh my god. You're like I could get used to this, this book tour thing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So I love it. And then uh, what about you growing up? Like you're from, you said San Francisco, I think before we came on the air. Yeah, and born then in Boston. San Francisco, lived in Boston from when I was about 9 to 16. So kind of the formative years took place there. And then what? And then we moved back to California. For the like the last the two last years of high school? For the last year, year and a half of high school. How was that? It sucked. Did it? It sucked. Moving then sucks. It sucked. You were it like... was like, it was not good. That had a like permanent effect on my personality. Like what and how I see the world. D- darkened you? Dark. I was already tended towards dark, but that was like... Moving is a kind of death. Absolutely. You say goodbye I to your life. totally agree with that. I yes. mean, you can still hang on to some of those friends if they're really good, deep friendships and things work out, but um, probably not. No. It was, it, was, it was pretty brutal. It is. I mean, it really... I remember moving, and I remember driving away in our station wagon, and it was like, man, it was heavy. And I remember it clearly, and I remember nothing. Yeah. And it is sort of like a dress rehearsal for saying goodbye to everything. It's it's <laughs> true. That's actually really well said. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was that it kind of messed me up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, w- I was like fifth grade going into sixth grade, uh-huh. so it fucked with me. My yeah. sister was uh, eighth grade going into ninth grade, and I don't want to overstate the trauma of this because I have talked about this in this show. For so for listeners, I don't want to make it sound like I lived through like the potato famine. <laughs> <laughs> Like my dad got transferred and it's like, oh my God. But you know, it's like, it's a tough thing. Yeah. But when you're a kid, it's like, that's your whole, that's your whole everything outside your family. And the older you get, the more you want outside your family. And so to lose all that. There's a lot to lose. It's a lot. It's everything. It feels like everything. Did it toughen you at all though? Yes. And Boston toughened me too. Because East Coast is so different than the West Coast. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm great. I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for it. But man. It was. Tough. Are our kids going to just be big pussies because they were raised on the West Coast? <laughs> I'm sure they are. <laughs> of I'm course. I'm in L.A. God knows. Oh my God, I'm, I'm in Portland. Yeah, like, oh my like... stars! <laughs> They're going to grow up and I don't know, make artisanal sheep cheese. Do or energy something. work. I know. Yeah. Um. So okay. So, but you grew up. What are your? What did your folks do? Let's see. My mom. My parents were divorced when I was five. So my dad was on the West Coast. Um. When we moved to Boston, I only saw him once a year. He he taught law school. He taught ethics at a law school in San Francisco. And my mom was like a sort of executive for a 
like a nonprofit. She worked for the Boston Bar Association, which is like lawyers, right? The big group of lawyers. Yeah. So okay. she ran their thing. So she was like a big, big mucky muck. Wow. Yeah. And a woman doing what she did at the time she did it. It was the eighties. I think was probably a really big deal. That, so that's cool. It is. Yeah, it was cool. You have I mean, a sibling? No appreciation. No, I'm an well, I'm an only child mostly. I have three half siblings from my dad's first marriage, but they're like. 15 years older than me and so i didn't grow up with them i'm just like i'm connecting with them a lot more now and like getting to know them yeah is it more like an aunt or an uncle or something i mean no i mean so my sister especially my sister Nora, is the one i'm sort of the closest become the closest with in the last few years um so she feels like a sister but i just didn't see i never I just didn't see them almost ever i mean i saw my dad once a year you know i really didn't see them so yeah that's what that's not a lot to see your dad no it wasn't kind of sucked yeah are you are you guys close now yeah you are yeah he's awesome he's older he's almost 90 actually holy shit i know well i was the second family you know right he he was almost 50 when he had me okay so yeah that's cool that you guys have gotten to know each other better he's awesome he's like hilarious he's a really funny smart guy yeah maybe that's like the improv yeah it might be well the person who got me into improv was actually my sister she's the one that told me about the groundlings and was like, have you ever been to the Groundlings? And I was like, no. I used to drive by it all the time. And then I was. I've thought about doing that, but I've never done you it. You should do it. Should I? It's, you should just do it. You can go. They have like a, you know, like an audition that you can do. I think everybody in LA who's driven by the Groundlings has been like, maybe. Do it. In. Like there's something. It's great. Because it's terrifying. And it also is like, I don't know. It's just one of those things of like, well, I'm scared and I did that anyway. And like, oh, yeah. yeah. This is my Groundlings. In is a, it? In a filthy garage. It's beautiful. Self-contained. <laughs> Yes and, <laughs> yes, yes and yes and it is. Um, so, but you weren't bookish, like you said earlier. You weren't the kid who was like in her attic writing poetry. No, no. I especially when I came back to California and was feeling really displaced. I really turned to books. I and I like I loved, and it wasn't even like I loved the. Uh, uh, the stories inside them. I loved books. Like I would, I spent all the money. I worked at the stationery store was my job. Every single penny I had went to either like books or, or music. That was, that was all I bought in high school. Yeah. In high school. And I didn't even like, what was it that you were reading? Do you remember? Oh God. I mean, I was buying, I was so pretentious. I was buying everything. (laughs) I was buying philosophy. Mostly I was buying philosophy and poetry. Um, Sylvia Plath. I know. I didn't no. think of Sylvia Plath until I was in my 20s. I already started writing when I read Sylvia Plath. No, I was like into philosophy. I don't know what I was thinking. No, I get that. But you were like you were like intellectually ambitious. Yes, and I you're guess trying so. And like, you're trying to like kind of punch higher than your weight or whatever. Yes, totally. That's and I don't even thing. know where it came from. My mom wasn't a reader. I had that too. I, I used to pick up books that I knew were like way beyond me. Yes. And I'd be like, I'm going to read this. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and then mostly this out of my shelf and I'd yeah. flip through and like occasionally I'd read an Emerson essay and be like, yes. Yes. And then be like, okay, I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, where'd you go to college? Um, Humboldt State University. Do you smoke a ton of pot? I did. Humboldt State. I just, I was <sighs> just over the holidays. I was down at the beach with my uh, wife and kids and we pulled into the parking lot and there was a, like a jeep cherokee or whatever next to us and i mean the most hungover stoned guy (laughs) and his wife and their daughter 
and they had like been to like a concert the night their daughter was like three months old they're like yeah we went to the concert it was a little loud for her and i'm like wait you brought her to a concert oh my god but i mean he was like and i went to uh boulder so like i just know that type yeah was it what i'm thinking of yes humboldt state yeah it was i mean it was a couple things it was i didn't go there for that I went there because it was as far as I could go away in California, but still not pay out-of-state tuition. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was also the landscape. I was really, really drawn to the trees. You like the outdoors? I, I just love the, like, the way it feels to be in the trees and the fog and the rain. Like that, that, that was just like, yes, 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 yes. And so I went up there mostly for that. And then, like, the byproduct was there was a lot of pot up there. And everybody would seem to be stoned all the time. It's just in the air. Yeah. It's a culture. It, it, it is. And I feel like it was different then probably than it is now because yeah. it's, it's, it's different now. It's mainstreamed a little bit more now. But, I mean, yeah. I, I didn't go to Boulder thinking, like, oh, I'm going to smoke a ton of pot. Yeah. But then you're there and it feels so normal because everyone is doing it. All the time. Constantly. Yes. And you're like, oh, this is just like. It's just part of what you do. It's part of what you do. It's and then And weird. then you leave there and you're like. Not, oh <laughs> not everyone is stoned all the time. Not everybody carries a sneak toe yeah, in their car. Who knew? <laughs> it's a revelation. Yeah. It's like a, it's a big breakthrough I had yeah. when I was like 24. I know. And it feels big, doesn't <laughs> yeah. it? It's like, oh, dawn of consciousness. Yeah. Not, yeah. not everyone <laughs> listens to the same four bands. Can't believe this. <laughs> totally. So did you get any, I mean, did you study at all or was it more just kind of like I'm in the trees in the fog? Um, I mean, that's really where I studied philosophy. So I did. Um, I, I wasn't a great student, probably because I was stoned, but also because, you know, what I loved about philosophy was I loved reading and I loved talking and arguing about philosophy, but philosophy as a degree is all about writing philosophical papers. Mm. And I did not enjoy that. Like it, it, that, that wasn't me at my best. And so like. I, you know, I pushed, I pushed it uphill and I, I pulled my degree off just barely. Um, but, uh, but it, I mean, I don't know. What am I trying to say? Studying wise. I mean, I wasn't a great, I wasn't a great student. I did a lot of reading. I did great reading and I, I feel like I understood most of what I read and I loved it. And That's I, the most important thing. It is. And then the reason I picked that degree, I knew I wasn't a total idiot. I mean, I knew it wasn't like I was going to have a lot of lucrative career opportunities after my degree, but... Yeah, did you have any idea what you were going to do? I thought I was going to go to grad school for philosophy. I mean, I thought I would teach. Is what, I mean, there's not a lot. You can go to law school and you can teach, or you can spend the rest of your time stoned, you know, working at a video store. Yeah, <laughs> which is fine if you make that decision. Um, yeah. But it's probably, um, a, it's probably a great life. It probably is a great life. It's probably what are way we doing? simpler. <laughs> Seriously, man. Just never leave Humboldt. Oh, God, I know. So um, I get out and at the, like my last, right at the end of school, um, when I think I'm probably going to get my master's degree because I don't know what else to do, um, I, I meet my husband, who the man will become my husband, and he's headed to L.A. because he's a film guy and he's going to grad Did school. Did he go to Humboldt? He went to Humboldt. Okay. Uh huh. We were all part of a big group of friends. You guys met like playing frisbee golf or something. Oh my god, no! <laughs> he was like the only one of us who never got stoned. Oh, I know. Good choice. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, we were just part of a big group of friends for years, and then right, just I don't know. One day we were like, oh, like we're kind of a lot alike, and we ended up getting together. And then he came to LA. He went to AFI, and I was like, oh, I don't want to go to LA, but we were supposed to go to Europe together. And then Jackass got into AFI. What are you going to do? Scrapped our Europe plans. 
Um, and then we, I followed him, and then that was kind of it. The rest is history. The rest is history. Well, and now here you are in this garage. And now here I am <laughs> in this garage. It's all been leading to this moment. Yes, and. Um, and so you've got other books going. Mm-hmm. That this is what you see yourself doing. Like you never, you never got an MFA. I never got an MFA. I always thought that that's what I was going to do, and I toyed with it on and off for years. But partly it was like, you know, we were here for my husband, and I didn't. He has so much debt from his masters that it was like, well, I don't want to do it unless I can do it debt free. And I also was scared. I mean, like, what if I apply to the school I want to go to, like Iowa or Syracuse or whatever, and I don't get in? Like, what does that say about me? Will that mess me up? Will I keep writing? Also, I knew a lot of people that went to grad school and they never wrote again. And so I was like, ah, it's just, I kept putting it off. Like, I'm going to keep doing this one more year. I'm going to keep doing this one more year. And then bit by bit, I just started to trust myself more. And now I feel, like, now I feel good. I, like, you can I, give yourself the equivalent of an MFA. It's not easy, but you can do it. Yes, you can. And it's not a, and then if you want to do the MFA, that's fine too. Yeah. Sort of my feeling. Yeah. I mean, it can work just as well and it's a structured environment. And totally. If you get money, all the better. Yeah. You know, but uh, it's not a necessity. No, I don't think it is. No, and, not at all. And like you have to be really, I think you have to be disciplined maybe at least in the, in the same time frame that you would spend in school making yourself sit down and write, making yourself read. Oh, so, so true. Because I think what I, I wanted to go to grad school because I wanted like two or three years where I didn't have to deal with real life. Like I could disappear and do nothing but read and write because I had to. That's what I wanted. But then the, you know, because I started writing as a, as an adult, the more I did it, it was like, well, but then you get out, but then what? Like I, then I'm going to have to relearn how to balance my real life and writing. And if I just keep doing this like but then i'm doing the thing that i'm gonna have to do anyway <laughs> so right. i was like i'm just gonna keep doing it and it's so far it's, it's working out, out for you yeah so go, like going forward like your hope is to um just publish books from that's here it on out. i just want to publish books yeah and you think that um in terms of like work-life balance with two kids like how do you do it schedule-wise it's, it's brutal it's brutal. You do a little tiny bit. So it used to be, I used to have a whole ritual of crap I would do before I'd, I'd read, read a little bit of poetry and I'd light a candle and then I'd do this first <laughs> and then I'd check my email. And then and now it's like, I got 15 minutes and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to get through this page or I'm going to edit this, whatever. And you just get good at like starting and stopping, starting and stopping. And you can train yourself to do that. But I didn't think I could do that before. And now I do it because I have to. Microbursts. Totally. I was talking to Amy Bender and she's got like, you know, young twins. And she's like, yeah, I write in 15 minute increments. Yeah. You have to. So does it change what you write when you write in short bursts and you can't really sit with it for a while? Like, are you writing in short little paragraphs and is your work more pointillistic or whatever because of that? You know, I don't think so. I mean, I I, certainly, I think probably writing short stories lends itself to that kind of those microbursts. Um, I th- I'm guessing that would be harder. In a Is novel. microburst a real term? I don't. I think we just made it up. Let's, I like it. I like it too. I think parents everywhere are like, oh yeah, because everything is microburst. I'm gonna go to the bathroom in a microburst. <laughs> really true <laughs> anything that's like for your own enjoyment is a micro burst, i know yeah. oh god it's um <laughs> yeah so but um i mean what do i want to say so in terms of how it affects your work and does it look any different you know i don't think so because i think the, the way it actually helps it is that you know i have to be really productive for 15 minutes and then i have to do whatever I'm doing. And for me, sometimes the 
the most interesting stuff or ideas will happen after I've been writing and then my brain kind of shuts down and something will occur to me about a character when I'm not writing. And so there's more of that. There's more of that like being in and out, in and out of the story when I feel like a lot of interesting stuff happens in terms of character Just and letting ideas. your subconscious just like kind of do the, yeah. do the work. Yeah, and that still happens, which is amazing considering how tired I am and how I feel more disconnected from my writing in terms of like sinking into it. But that's still there. It's still there. Do you have to write stuff down or do you remember it? It depends. I used to write stuff down religiously when I first started. And now it's like, I do still sometimes, but now it's more like it, I, I keep it with me. It'll, it it lands on me harder now. And if, if it sticks with me, it's like, oh, yeah, that's not going anywhere. And if you forget it, it probably wasn't worth a shit yeah. anyway. Yeah, that's what Lisa Glad always said. Yeah. yeah, that's what I mean. Like people who are like obsessively journaling, it's like, I mean, I think there's something to that. But I also feel like the really good stuff probably is going to stick. Yeah. One would hope. Yeah. Though sometimes I'll have like a thought in my, like in the middle of the night, you know, as I'm in and out of sleep and I'll be like, I should write this down. That stuff I do try and write down. Yeah. yeah Cause that stuff I do forget. Like talk it into your phone. Oh yes. That's what I did when I, when my kids were, yeah, like teeny tiny babies. And I feel like too, like there's a part of me that sometimes wants to secretly record dialogue on my phone using uh-huh. the audio recorder uh-huh. just because I'll sometimes be rereading dialogue and I'm like this, this like rhythmically works, but it sounds sort of there's something always inherently phony. Uh-huh. I don't know. Yeah. Sometimes I can read really like authentically r- real seeming dialogue, but most of the time it's like a literary trick and it still works. Yeah. It's still enjoyable to read. And I know that if you actually transcribe what people say, it's a big fat mass. I know. It's so a you're going to, you're going to have to edit it anyway. I know it's true. But I've had that, I've had that thought in the back of my mind lately. Like I should start recording people. You should do it and see, that was an exercise. I'm actually recording you right now. Are you? So you know. Oh my God. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> what am I talking about? <laughs> I really want to. I want to record people. I say on the 400th episode of my podcast. <laughs> you should really tell people about this. Yeah, I was just for everybody listening. I was telling Margaret before we came on. Like I look fairly sane. Like I have my shit somewhat together. But then you, uh, you know, you'll have these moments where I'll say something like that. So um, I'm really happy for you. Thank you. You know, I'm glad your husband's doing better. I congratulate you. you on your two babies and your nice. book. Uh, you got a lot going for you. Yeah, thank and, you. Uh, thank you. I wish you lots of trees and fog. Thank you. And good success on the next books. Thanks so much, Brad. Okay, guys, there you go. Margaret Malone. Really fun talking with her. Her story collection is called People Like You. It's available now from Atelier 26. Go get it. People Like You. You can find Margaret online at margaretmalone.com. And uh, on Twitter, her handle over there is at Margaret Malone. She might be on other social media, but those are the, you can figure it out. You know how to do it, right? Thanks to David Bowie for the uh, interstitial music today. I hope this is okay, David. Is this okay? Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the uh, theme song music and the band uh, Stereo Total. Don't forget about the app. This podcast has its own app. It's the best way to listen. You get the most recent 50 episodes for free. And then you can sign up for premium within the app and get access to all the episodes, almost 400 episodes and counting. Go get the app. It's free.
If you want to email me, the address is letters at other people.com. Letters at other PPL.com. Letters at other PPL.com. Email me. Let me know what you think. You know, it, it's okay if you want to post uh, grief tweets about David Bowie. Or like tributes on your Facebook wall. It's okay. I guess it's okay. I, you know, part of it is an indictment of myself. I'm like, am I, am I sincere here? What am I doing? Why am I doing this? Questioning my own motives. Overthinking it. I love this song. I was trying to pick out which songs to use, and I was like, I was like, should I use like some more obscure David Bowie, or maybe some uh, tracks off a new album? And I was like, no, fuck it. Just play Heroes. Please remember that George Bernard Shaw died at 94 after, uh, of complications after breaking a hip and that Hannah Arendt died of a heart attack. That is all for now, folks. Uh, I just feel stupid talking over this song. <laughs> thanks to Margaret Malone. Thanks to you guys for listening. And uh, thanks to David Bowie. Such thing as death.